Mark, it's astonishing to me just the thought that you would go to church and this would be the first thing you would hear already before the chorus begins singing. There's something extraordinary happening. There really is, David. Before we continue, let's get the introductions out of the way. That voice you just heard is Delta David Geyer. He's the music director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, which the New Yorker critic Alex Ross dubbed one of America's boldest orchestras. David conducted the performance you're hearing and will be our guide to this music throughout the series. This is Hearing the Music, a show where we explore masterpieces of sacred music, considering the artistry and theology behind them. I'm Mark Bertrand, by the way. I'm a novelist and a Christian minister the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Sioux Falls. My contribution will be to bring out some of the ideas of the gospel narrative in this music. In season one, we featured the St. John Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach, an unparalleled work from a man who was arguably the greatest sacred musician of all time. Now, in season two, our focus is an even more ambitious work, Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Over the course of the next seven episodes, David and I will get help from experts and from the performers who brought the SDSO's 2022 performance to life. This is episode one, The Anointing. The music we've just heard is the opening chorus of St. Matthew Passion. This is a work that was composed in 1727 and was first used in a worship service, Good Friday, uh, in Leipzig, Germany. It's a magnificent way to begin a church service if the focus is on the transcendence and the beauty and the awe of worship, whether people in the audience understood the magnitude of the genius of the work, I don't know, but it's, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone could have been present there and not felt the goosebumps that I feel when I hear that music. Yeah, you can hear the throbbing in the bass line in this opening music, sort of anxiousness of the melodic line in the various instruments. It's already brought you into this scene. Well, you know you've gone to church on Good Friday to hear a passion narrative the narrative of Jesus's last evening with his disciples and his arrest, crucifixion. You're brought into a tragedy from the very beginning. Right. I mean, it's a good point. There is a tradition behind this work of passions that would have been specifically experienced on Good Friday. And Bach didn't create that tradition. That was something that went back further. Obviously, in uh, the medieval period, we're familiar with the passion plays then. But in the Reformation in the Lutheran Church in Germany in particular, there had been this focus on these works on Good Friday, which retold the narrative from the Gospels of Christ's passion. So in this case, the the main text, I suppose we could say, the, the through line for the narrative is the scripture text from Matthew's Gospel, uh, just two chapters that will carry us through this entire narrative all the way from uh, the upper room to Christ's crucifixion, death, and burial. In this opening 
course, there are some elements to take note of. The scope of this work was so much bigger than anything that had ever been done before. It's 68 movements, um, double choir, double orchestra, eight voices in each of the choirs, all kinds of, of interconnections musically throughout it. And our, our performance we're listening to is with the South Dakota Symphony and Chorus, uh, performed on April 2nd of, of 2022. But our performance lasted three and a half hours, including an intermission. So, you know, this is such a substantial work. Nothing like it had ever been done before Bach. Nothing of this scope. He was really looking to blow the form out proportionally. So if I understand correctly, the the way these passions had begun, you, you just used the text of Scripture and then over time, that was expanded and additional texts were brought in. And so uh, that's one of the ways that, that Bach is expanding things, that, that he's bringing more material in. But he's also expanding things musically as well, right? Right. So you have, you have two choruses and two orchestras that, that perform in an antiphonal kind of function. They're calling back and forth to each other. There's a dialogue happening in this opening chorus between one chorus being called the faithful and the other chorus being called the daughters of zion which is a scriptural reference right that's right you'll find in the old testament frequently scripture refers to the daughters of zion or the daughters of jerusalem as representatives of the people of israel for example in isaiah chapter 62 and i think this is an important reference in light of the passion narrative, you'll find in, in Isaiah 62, verse 11, uh, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So even there in that verse, you can hear that there's a, an invitation, a call to those daughters to come and see what is happening. Come and see the arrival of your promised salvation. So we have actually the daughters of Zion being called to by the faithful. And so you'll hear um, those daughters crying out um, when, when the faithful say, come and see. We spoke with Dr. Timothy Campbell, who is the chorus master of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. And he actually says this chorus is his favorite part of the entire work. So we asked him to explain why that is, and also to walk us through the dialogue that David is talking about. The fact that you have the dialogue between choir one and choir two, an invitation to weep, a searching and yearning for understanding between the two, confusion. Is it a command that choir one has, and then a question, and then the answer, which is a, a summation of the conversation of this passion event. And then the fact that you have so much happening harmonically, melodically, these independence between the two choirs. The, you know, the first choir says, come help me We see the bridegroom. And then we, we say, who? They say, see, and, we, and then the choir two says, who? The bridegroom. See, how? See him, how? As a lamb. And then again, they don't understand who. There's this over and over having to explain and understand because it's so difficult to comprehend or we're ignorant to it. What I find beautiful is that it's for someone who studied music for their whole life, 
the most skilled musicians, singers, instrumentalists, composers who Bach might have been associated with performing the work or who might hear the work, but also for you and your children, and literally children, because after this asking, then the children, the boy sopranos in the, in the Thomas Kirchhoff, would then sing a chorale tune that everyone in that congregation and in Leipzig would have known for a couple hundred years, um, O Spotless Lamb of God. And that chorale tune soars above this complex texture. And so it just seems like an offering for the most learned to the most, the most innocent, the most unknowing. As skilled as Bach was, he was trying to reach everyone listening. If you listen carefully, you'll hear um, amidst all of the activity of the two other two choirs calling back and forth to each other, a kind of soaring melodic line. Also quite interestingly is the text because the anxiety that's being presented by this calling back and forth, come and see, is the assurance that's coming from the chorale that actually this, this spotless lamb of God has been slaughtered for us. And we have the assurance of our salvation from the very beginning of, of this passion. Well, why don't we listen to that and then we'll come back and unpack it more. Good idea. Within this opening chorus, Bach provides uh, a moment of contrast where he sort of pairs down the forces. And again, the two choruses are calling back and forth to each other. And one chorus is saying, behold, our guilt. And the other chorus is saying, where? But above it, again, this, this, this treble choir is saying that you have borne all of our sin otherwise we would have despaired. So it's the that essential dichotomy, Mark, of, of you know, this innocent Lamb of God and the world of, of erring humanity whose sins Jesus must bear. Fate of one is tied to the other. 
Every good story begins with a kind of hook or a question that's being posed, and that's true for the passion narrative as well. The question is why? Why does this need to take place? Why does Christ need to come and and offer himself as a sacrifice? And so here, not only are we being told, you know, look to Christ as he comes, but we're also told to look to our own guilt, look to the guilt of our sin, because this is the reason why he must come. And so this is a question that is being asked right at the beginning that will recur throughout the work, this question of why is this happening? What is it all for? And again and again, we'll see that it is for us. It's for the guilt of our sin, which needs to be covered, and it is for his love for us that leads him to do it. David, before we go any farther, I think we need to take a moment and describe the structure of this passion, because it has a very sophisticated structure to it, doesn't it? It does indeed, yeah. So we have what we might call like the the ground floor, the narrative level, where we're going to hear uh, recits where the evangelist is going to be seeing the text of Scripture, but that will also include characters within the story. Singing for Jesus, for example, is is going to be sung by a, a particular singer, but also sometimes those voices will come from the chorus, right? Yeah, the chorus plays many different roles. We've just had the Daughters of Zion and the Faithful, but there are other moments where we'll hear the chorus playing the role of the disciples and their response to something Jesus has said, or or the high priests, or the rabble, the crowd calling for Barabbas. These things will come throughout the, the Passion narrative, and the chorus represents a collective of people who are responding, usually to what the evangelist has to say. In addition to that, we'll have pairings of accompanied recitatives and arias sung by four soloists who are not characters in the story. They're devotional in nature, intended to comment upon the action within the gospel narrative and help us to apply what we've now seen and heard to our own lives. What's interesting to me about that is that really parallels a way that a worshiper might read the text of Scripture, pause, reflect on its meaning, meditate over it, pray over it, and apply it to themselves. So in the Passion, you actually have a structure that mirrors the way that a person might devotionally read and apply Scripture. Exactly, and that would have been the purpose for a Good Friday service and therefore for, for a Passion to be presented. Well, let's dip our toes into the water here and and experience one of these recits for ourselves. Yes. So here we have our evangelist for this performance, Timothy Bench, who is absolutely masterful at at bringing the words of Scripture to life in a recitative, which is a recitation of the Scripture musically, very sparse accompaniment. Also within this recitative we're about to hear is the character of Jesus saying, two days from now, we'll celebrate the Passover. So it's a familiar gospel narrative. One thing to notice about Jesus, every time he appears, he's surrounded by a halo of the string orchestra, basically just undergirding all that he says, with the exception of one time, which we'll get to in a later episode. Let's listen now to Timothy Bench and our Jesus for this performance with the South Dakota Symphony, Stephen Bryant. 
Da Jesus diese Rede vollendet hatte, sprach er zu seinen Jüngern. Ihr wisset, dass nach zwei Tagen aus dem Bild und des Menschensohn wird über antwortet werden, dass er Next, we have another one of these elements, the, the first chorale. These chorales help us to reflect on what we've just heard in the gospel. The tune, uh, the melodic line on the top, would have been very familiar to the congregation in Leipzig and Bach's time. It would be a hymn that they sang regularly. The harmonies that Bach uses would have been unique and totally composed just for this passion. Well, the words we're about to hear in translation are, Beloved Jesus, what hast thou done wrong that they have pronounced so hard a sentence? What is thy guilt? Into what sort of misdeeds hast thou fallen? So you can see, we see Jesus on the stage. He sings his line. And now the chorale really meditates on who he is and how can he be in this situation. It's trying to bring to life a, a bit of the shock that the disciples must have felt when the first time that Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. Right, surely, of all people, you should be celebrated, not punished. And yet, here we are. Well, let's listen to that chorale. Next, we have a pairing of a recitative from the evangelist with a chorus. In this scene, we find Jesus in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and there's a woman who breaks a bottle of costly ointment to anoint Jesus. And then the chorus jumps in representing the disciples, saying that this ointment could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. Yeah, it, it sounds like they're making a pious point. You know, surely Jesus cares more about the poor than he does about smelling nice. But they miss entirely the significance that he is being prepared for his death. He's being anointed with oil in anticipation of his death. And that this act is a beautiful act of worship that this woman is performing. Tische saß. 
und Bandianen sagen, wurde sie unfällig gesprochen. So immediately after this, Jesus responds to the disciples and really resets their sense of priority, insisting that this beautiful act of anointing that this woman has performed will be remembered. That point of Jesus's then leads into recit and aria. The aria is called Bus und Roy. It's, it's guilt and remorse tears the sinful heart in two. It's sung by wonderful mezzo-soprano Clara Osowski. The word knirscht, knirschen, means to tear. It's a percussive sound, and Clara does such a beautiful job of emphasizing it, that it, it tears the sinful heart in two. We talked to Clara, and we asked her what it was like to sing this aria, and here's what she shared. I, I love this aria so much. I think it's it's him giving us a gift. We don't always get gifts as mezzos from composers. I think this is one of those that does get inward before you even know it. There is a simplicity to it, but it's also like the immediacy of these words. Like you said, knirscht. If you're not a native German speaker, you still understand something behind that. Like you can't hear the word knirscht and not understand that there's something underlying all that. Bach is all about contrast. So here, you know, we thinking again back to this huge, you know, double chorus, double uh, double orchestra that we started with. Now he's pared it down to two flutes, uh, one cello, one bass, and organ. Just five instruments and this, this solo alto voice. There's a beautiful contrast in the text from that guilt and that pain and the the tears that are being shed, but those tears of weeping become the precious balm with which Jesus is anointed. So the guilt, it's it's repurposed as as a way of worshiping and honoring him. There's a wonderful example of Bach's painting of words here. 
in the text when it talks about the drops of my tears, you'll notice that the flutes are playing a staccato, very short, falling figure, as if tears are falling. But immediately when it talks about the soothing balm, you'll notice that things smooth out in the two flutes, uh, become legato. Well, let's listen to that and see if we can pick up on it. the sound of this breathtaking aria. Next time, Jesus and his disciples gather around the table to observe the Last Supper. For more information on hearing the music, visit us online at hearingthemusic.org. Oh, so-